Before I even begin to read the word, I ask that you would join me in prayer, asking God's help, both for the reading and the preaching and the hearing of God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we pray that you would bless to our hearts and minds the reading and the preaching of your word. Instruct us, convict us, and drive us to the Savior in repentance and faith. Oh, may it be so. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I ask that you would remain standing as you are able for the reading of God's holy word. We continue in our regular sermon series from the book of Romans. And this morning we turn to Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 13. Romans 7, 7 through 13. Listen now as I read, for this is the very word of God. The apostle Paul writes, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but then the commandment came. Sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. May the Lord bless to our hearts and minds the reading of his word, and you may be seated. Well, we live in a confusing world. It's a world filled with many questions. Right now, geopolitical questions are at the forefront of many people's minds. People ask, what will, what should Israel do in response to Hamas's brutality and evil? What then will Hezbollah and Iran and other nations do in response to whatever Israel does? What should the United States do in the midst of it all? The various scenarios are complex riddled with danger at every turn. The questions are apparent. The answers are not so clear. But to be sure, these are important questions. They need to be asked by national and global leaders. The answers are also important, for they will shape world events and impact many lives. But perhaps this morning you say, You know, I don't really have the mental space for geopolitics. Perhaps you have more pressing and immediate personal concerns. You're asking questions like, what should I do about my difficult job situation? What should I do with my struggling marriage? 
What should I do with the strained relationships that are in my own family? I mean, I'll leave geopolitics to the experts. I have too many questions about my own life. I tell you, such personal questions are also important. You need to ask them. And, and you need to seek to answer them to the best of your ability because the questions you ask and the answers you give will certainly shape your personal life. And with so many questions swirling about us, with so much obviously at stake at a global and a personal level, we would be wise to ask, which questions are the most important? Because none of us has the personal bandwidth to ask all the questions, and come up with all the answers. So we all have to determine, what are the most important questions? What must we ask? And what answers must we seek and find? Well, if you're wrestling with that question, I would suggest once and again, once again, that you're in the right place. Because we've gathered together once again to study the book of Romans. And as we've seen over these past weeks and months, Romans is presenting us with the ultimate questions and Romans is giving us clear and life-transforming answers to these questions. What we've been saying now over the past couple of weeks is that Romans, so far, is forcing us to deal with three great questions. Number one, why must a person be saved? Answer, because our sin places us under the wrath and condemnation of a holy God. Question two, how is a person saved? Answer, by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ in his righteous life, propitiating death and triumphant resurrection. And question three, how is a saved person then to live before the Lord? Answer, well, we're smack dab in the middle of answering that question in our ongoing study of the book of Romans. So this morning, if you're wrestling with these ultimate questions, you're in the right place. Because these questions are the ultimate questions And Romans is providing the ultimate answers. I tell you, the day will surely come when each and every one of us will stand before the Lord. On that day, the questions of geopolitics and the questions of our personal trials will fade to nothing. What will matter on that day, all that will matter on that day is what we have believed about Jesus Christ And how we have lived for him. And if that is what will matter most on that great day, I tell you, it is what matters most today. So with these things in mind, let us turn once again to the book of Romans. Now, as we turn to our passage for this morning, what we see right away is that as part of his answer to the great question, how should a saved person live before the Lord? Paul is asking us a question. He begins in verse 7 by asking, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? That's a pretty interesting question. We wonder, why would Paul even ask such a question? 
Well, if you've been with us over the past couple of weeks, you have some idea why he asks this question. It is because in the previous verses, Paul has had some pretty hard things to say about the law and about our relationship to the law as believers. Right? You may remember back in chapter 6, when Paul established that we are saved, that we are justified by faith alone in Christ alone, he said, are we as Christians, those who are saved by grace through faith in Christ, apart from all works, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And Paul answered, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Paul then went on to demonstrate right there in Romans 6 that that through our union with Christ by faith, the believer's old self has been crucified with Christ. So we have died to sin and sin no longer has dominion over us. So, So Paul is arguing we who have died to sin cannot, may not, and will not still live in it. So if that's the case, there's kind of a logical question in which we might say, okay, so then as Christians, if we're not to live in sin, if we're not to live lawlessly, then are we to live by the law? Should we now pursue God on the basis of his law? Should we seek to please God through adherence to the law? Having died to sin, will we now live to God by the law? But Paul answers no. Because, as he states very clearly in chapter 7, not only has the believer died to sin, but the believer has also died to the law. The believer, Paul says, is now released from the law. He's no longer captive to the law. We have died to the law in order that we might belong to another, who is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. So this this then raises uh, the present question. Uh, Okay, Paul, if as believers in Christ we have died to sin and we have died to the law, this would seem to place sin and the law in a kind of parallel construction. We have died to both sin and the law. So are you actually equating them? Are you actually saying that the law is sin since we've died to both of them? Is the law actually a bad thing like sin? Is it a wicked thing like sin that we should reject altogether? is, Is this what you're saying, Paul? Paul once again answers, by no means. And what Paul then proceeds to do in the verses before us is explain to us what the law is designed for. You might say, he tells us what the ministry of the law is. And by extension, what's very important, what it is not. You see, it's crucial for believers to understand what the law does and doesn't do so that we may consider the law and use the law rightly according to its divine purpose. Think for a moment about uh, a project that you have worked on or a recipe that you are using in order to cook something, right? You may have a most excellent tool or you may have a most savory and fresh ingredient. That tool, rightly used, 
will enable the project to go forward just right. That ingredient, rightly used, can make that dish a triumph. If it's used in the right way. At the right time. In the right manner. But if the tool or the ingredient is used in the wrong way, at the wrong time, for the wrong purpose, that project, that dish can be ruined. No matter how excellent the tool is in and of itself, no matter how perfect that ingredient is in and of itself. And so it is with the law. Its proper ministry, its proper purpose must be understood and it must be employed in the right way in order for the the great and grand project of the Christian life to be properly constructed. So Paul sets out here to explain to us what the proper ministry of the law is. And here in these verses, he spells out three aspects of the law's ministry. What we see here is that the law instructs, the law instigates, and the law illuminates. The law instructs, the law instigates, and the law illuminates. Let's consider each in turn. First, the law instructs. Paul says in verse 7 that the law is not sin, for if it had not been for the law, Paul says he would not have known sin. Now, one thing I think it's important to notice here throughout this entire passage, Paul is speaking in the past tense. So it would seem that all these verses are addressing Paul's previous life as a non-believer, who he was before he came to Christ. And he's describing the ministry that the law had on Paul, in particular before he became a Christian. And what then is that ministry? Well, the first aspect of the law's ministry is to teach us, it taught Paul in a comprehensive way what sin is what sin actually consists of. And Paul goes on to give a very specific example. He says, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now, coveting, of course, is that inner act of thought and desire in which one desires something for oneself that doesn't belong to us. Coveting is closely related to jealousy, to to envy. You you see something that isn't yours and you want it. You desire it for yourself. You in some way are discontent with what you have, what God has given you, and you fixate on what you do not have. Now, it's interesting that Paul would speak in this way, because at one level, Paul has already told us earlier in Romans 2 that by nature, the law is written on everybody's heart in the form of conscience, right? That all people have a basic sense of right and wrong because they're created in the image of God. People know, for instance, that it's it's wrong to kill a person for no reason. And various scholars have pointed out that that practically every society known to man has made some kind of prohibition against such premeditated and wanton killing. But while this law written on the heart in the form of conscience is indeed sufficient to condemn us before God, 
because none of us have even lived faithfully in light of what we intuitively know to be right and wrong. This knowledge is not comprehensive. It is not exhaustive. That there are actually elements of sin, particular forms of behavior that we as people don't even know are wrong unless God specifically tells us that they are wrong and sinful. So that we need the written law, the revealed law of God, to give us a more full-orbed and robust understanding of God's will, of His moral will. So consider coveting. It's, it's not actually an action that anyone can detect. It's not like murder or stealing or lying. No, it's, it's simply an inward action of the mind. It's a hidden thought. It's a secret desire. Something that could be concealed from any and every human being. And as such, human beings could reasonably conclude and do conclude that it's not sin. After all, we say, I didn't actually do anything wrong. Seems reasonable, does it not? I mean, after all, who would want to live in a society that not only polices our actions, but our thoughts? We would rightly say to such a government, there's no crime here. I was just thinking. But the law of God says, coveting is a sin. It's a sin that God can see and that God will call us to account for. And we see here that the law teaches, it instructs us what sin is, what sin consists of. And what we see in this single command is that God not only commands our outward actions, but also our inward thoughts. His standard of righteousness penetrates to the secret things, the intentions, the desires of the human heart and mind. Jesus goes on to instruct us in this fashion in the Sermon on the Mount. He instructs us on this inner principle of the law, teaching us that it not only applies to coveting, but this same principle applies to all the commandments. The commandment not to murder also forbids having hatred in your heart towards another. The commandment not to commit adultery also forbids and condemns lustful thoughts. Now, we would, we would not really know the penetrating character of sin because Paul says he, he did not know it unless and until the Lord tells us so. But Paul goes on to say, this is exactly what the Lord does in his law. He comprehensively instructs us on the, as to the content of sin. He identifies, the law identifies sin's scope, sin's height, sin's depth. And this is most useful and necessary this ministry of instruction, because if the Lord is going to judge us for our sin, we really need to know what sin is. And so this is part of what the law does. It instructs us as to what sin is, what it consists of. But what we see here in this passage is that the ministry of the law does not end with instruction. 
having instructed us about the content of what counts as sin, the law then engages in what you might call a ministry of instigation. That's our second consideration for the morning, this ministry of instigation. Paul says he he wouldn't have even known what it was to covet if the law had not said, do not covet. But the law's ministry doesn't end there. For having instructed Paul in terms of what coveting is, having made it clear that coveting is wrong, the law then does something else. Paul says that when he heard the commandment, Sin in him, in his old self, seized an opportunity through the law and produced in Paul coveting of all kinds. As soon as Paul became aware of what coveting was and that coveting was sin, he couldn't stop coveting. Paul goes on to say that apart from the law, sin lies dead. That once he was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and he died. What does Paul mean here? I think the words of esteemed commentator John Murray are very helpful on these points. Concerning the idea that apart from the law, sin lies dead, Murray writes this. Paul here in verse 8 is not speaking about the non-existence of sin but of sin as existing, yet as dead. And what he is referring to, Murray says, is the inertness, the inactivity, and in that sense, the deadness of sin, in contrast to the coming to life of sin to which he will presently refer. In in essence, Paul is speaking of sin in his old life like a sleeping giant lying there at the depth of his being. He didn't even know it was there. It was like it was dead. But then the law came and aroused the giant. It woke it up, began to poke it. So that the giant then began to rage around in the forefront of Paul's life. Similarly then, when Paul says, I was once alive apart from the law, Murray says this, when the apostle says, I was alive apart from the law, the word alive here cannot be used in the sense of life eternal or life unto God. Rather, Paul is speaking of the unperturbed, self-complacent, self-righteous life which he once lived before the turbulent motions and convictions of sin described in the preceding verses overtook him. So what Paul is essentially saying here is, before I knew Christ, sin was in me like a sleeping giant down in the basement so that I was totally unaware of its presence. I then felt safe and secure in my own righteousness. My house was in order. At least it seemed so to me. And I felt like I was alive. Like I was living well. Like I was pleasing God. But then the commandment came. It taught me about the true nature of sin. 
And when that happened, the sleeping giant awoke and it began to rage through the house of my heart. It was uncontrollable. I could not stop it. Sin began to control every aspect of my life. Suddenly, it was everywhere. I was once alive apart from the law, but then the commandment came and sin came alive and I died. Paul then adds, right? The very commandment that promised life. Because the law declares, do this and you shall live. That very commandment proved to be death to me. Because, in essence, because I could not do it. Because, as Paul says, sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So we see that the law not only instructs us in what is good and what is sin, making it clear, and this instruction we see not only involves our outward behavior, but our inner thoughts, but the law then instigates sin within us. It arouses sin. It provokes sin. It awakens sin. So that the law's instruction on what sin is, it exposes, arouses, and instigates the sin in us so that we actually want to do it. And this then is the second component of the law's ministry. Let me just ask you, have you ever felt this ministry of instigation? Where you've been told, perhaps even some young children, you've been told that you cannot do something. You are not allowed to do something. Or that you must do something. And right away, the immediate response of your heart is to say, I'm not allowed to do it. I want to do it. I must do it. (laughs) You can't make me do it. We laugh, but as we shall see, it's a horrible phenomenon. Now, we we say, why does the law do this? Why does the law not only instruct, but instigate? That leads us to the third aspect of the law's ministry, which is that the law illumines the true depth nature and perversity of sin. You see, the law could come to us and simply instruct us regarding the content of sin. And and then it could cease its ministry and, and leave us to try and obey it. And if this is all the law did, we would probably be able to convince ourselves that, yeah, we're actually obeying. We could conclude that sin though real, is a mere inconvenience, something to be overcome through reasonable human effort. But the law does not leave us with mere instruction. No, it instigates. It provokes our sin, awakens our sin, causing it to come alive and rage within us. The law seems to make things worse which might then lead one to conclude that the worsened state is the law's fault. That the law actually created our sin. That the law ends up bringing death to us. 
We could say to ourselves, oh, I'd been, I'd be so much better off if it wasn't for that law of God. Isn't that right? Paul says, by no means. He makes it very clear. The law did not create your sin or mine. It simply exposed the sin that was already there. The law didn't bring death to you. It was sin in you that brought you death. That sin was there all the time. The death sentence was upon you all the time. You just didn't know it. The law simply pointed out what was already there. You might think of it this way. The law is like a home inspector that goes into a mold-infested house where a family is living oblivious to the mold and happy as a clam. They don't see it. It's not there. The inspector, though, begins to point out the mold. And he points out that it is everywhere. It's behind every wall. It's under every floor. It's in every crack and crevice of the entire home. And now the family begins to say, this is all the inspector's fault. If he hadn't come... We wouldn't have to know any of this. The inspector brought ruin to our lives. He is the reason our children are sick. He is death to us. But of course, the culprit is not the inspector. It is the mold itself. And similarly, the law is not the culprit. It is sin in us awakened and aroused and provoked by the law. Paul says unequivocally, the law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good, but the good law awakens, arouses, and instigates the monster of sin living in us all. And all of this is done, Paul says, so that we will be able to see the true nature and depth and scope of sin in us. It is so, as Paul says in verse 13, so that we could see sin producing death in me through what is good, that is the law, might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. You see, sin instructs us on the content of sin. I'm sorry, the law instructs us on the content of sin. The law instigates and provokes sin within us so that our sin would be able to be shown to be sinful beyond measure. Through the ministry of the law, we come to see sin is no mere inconvenience. It is no mere obstacle that we can overcome with a little self-discipline, a little control, a little moral improvement. Sin is a monster that dwells inside us. Sin rages within us and it cannot be defeated through mere human effort. 
No, as the ministry of the law works in our hearts and minds, we come to see that sin is sinful beyond measure. And the law makes this clear. Through instruction and instigation, the law illumines us to the true nature and power of sin so that we see sin cannot be defeated even by the most rigorous application of the law to our lives. When we hold up the law to our lives, when we imply the law to our lives, it rightly instructs us on the content of sin. It righteously then provokes and instigates indwelling sin to come out of the shadows in order that it might illumine us to the true nature and depth of sin. This is what the law does. But note this, believer, what the law does not do, has never done, and cannot do is save us from that sin. The law has not, will not, and cannot save. The law has not, will not, and cannot justify. And as we will see clearly next week, the law has not, will not, and cannot sanctify the believer. It instructs. It instigates. It illuminates. But it cannot redeem. Which leaves us then with the question. Well, then what can? What can save? What can justify? What can sanctify? What can redeem us from first to last? And the answer that Paul has been giving and will continue to give is that only Jesus can save. Only Jesus through his righteous life and his perfect obedience and fulfillment of the law. Only Jesus can provide righteousness that satisfies the Father. Only Jesus in his a perfect, atoning, propitiating death can deal with our sin once and for all. Only Jesus in His resurrection life, can provide us with that life, that dynamism, that power that is our sanctification and brings about the transformation of our lives. The law is but a tool. Used improperly, that is, as a means of salvation, in our hand, it will only serve to damage, destroy, and drive us to death. But used properly as means to expose our sin and drive us to Jesus, it is a wonderful tool in the Master's hand. The law instructs us in the content of sin. It instigates our sin so we see it expressed and then it illumines us to the horrors of sin. We see that sin is indeed sinful beyond measure and beyond all human remedy. But it does all of this so that it can drive us to Christ. My simple prayer this morning is that we would believe in and depend on Jesus Christ, crucified and risen as our only hope in life and in death. Through faith, 
by faith. May we be united to Christ. If we believe, we can say we are united to Christ in his death and resurrection. So may we believe. Oh, Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief so that we may be able to rest in and know and declare that Jesus is the only source of our justification. His righteousness is our only plea. His death, our only source of forgiveness. And in union with Christ, may we understand and believe that His death is the only thing that crucifies our old nature and His life in us through the indwelling Holy Spirit is the only source of our new obedience. The law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. But it cannot save. It cannot justify. It cannot sanctify the believer. Only Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, can do this. As we will sing in just a few moments, none but Jesus, none but Jesus, none but Jesus can do helpless sinners good. So brothers and sisters, may the law drive us to the end of ourselves and drive us to Jesus Christ as our salvation, our justification, our sanctification. May we venture on Him, venture wholly, and let no other trust intrude. I tell you, Jesus is the ultimate answer to all of life's ultimate questions. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And what we've already sung this morning, may it be true in all of our hearts and minds this day. Thou, O Jesus, Thou art the way, the truth, the life. Grant us that way to know, that truth to keep, that life to win, whose joys eternal flow. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before You. And we pray that the law would have its way with us. That it would have your way with us. Showing us what sin is. Provoking that sin. So that we see that sin is utterly sinful. And we desperately need a Savior. And that we would flee again and again and again into the arms of Jesus. That we would rest in our union with Him in His death and resurrection. And we would be able to say, we are dead to sin. We have died to the law as our means of having fellowship with God. And we are united to Christ. So produce in us, O Father, by the power of the Spirit, the very life of Christ in us. A life that loves the law. A life that fulfills the law. Not saved and sanctified by the law, but by Jesus. May we rest in Jesus and pursue His holiness all of our days. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.